Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The History Channel Original Podcast. Christmas trees, kindergartens, hamburgers, and hot dogs. We have a lot to thank German-Americans for. During the 1840s, Germans were immigrating to the United States en masse. They're one of the groups that comes in large numbers. They bring with them their culture, their customs, and good old beer. <laughs> That's Mireya Losa, Associate Professor of History and American Studies at Georgetown University. Up until the mid to late 19th century, the most popular kinds of beer in America had been warm, English-style ales. But when Germans moved to the Midwest in large numbers, Americans were introduced to lager. What the Germans bring is they bring that lager, which is a brew that is made by basically a cold process. And what you need is you need it to be chilly, you need it to be cold. And so they come into places like Milwaukee and they not only make their own brew, but they also basically start creating the culture that existed in Germany around beers, which is beer houses. So we see beer houses, we see folks that frequent beer gardens on Sundays. And out of those early German beer gardens in places like Chicago, St. Louis, and Milwaukee emerged one of America's favorite beers, Pabst Blue Ribbon a lager beloved by Americans across the country that sells millions of bottles and cans every year. This is The Food That Built America, stories of innovation, taste, and good eats. Today, we'll take you back to the 19th century to find out how a shipwreck led to America's love of lager beer. And we'll hear how Pabst became the first brewery to sell more than a million barrels of beer in a year. I'm your host, Jonathan Hirsch. In the late 1800s, Chicago and Milwaukee were duking it out to be the capital city of American beer. And for a while, Chicago was in the lead. But then, in 1871, disaster struck. The entire upper Midwest was going through a desperately hot and dry period. And there were massive fires throughout the region. That's Doug Hoverson, the author of The Drink That Made Wisconsin Famous. Chicago was a city that had been built hastily. It had been built out of wood, and it was also the home to some of the largest lumber yards in the world. So the conditions were ripe for a disaster. Some people speculated that a cow kicking a lantern started the fire. Others said that a group of gamblers accidentally started the fire. But whatever happened, a fire in a small barn set off a series of sparks that would devastate the city. By the time the final embers burned out, many of the city's breweries had either been destroyed or severely damaged. So another city had to step up and become the home of American brewing. And the city that stepped up to the plate was Milwaukee. Milwaukee had a number of things going for it that really set it up to be the capital of lager beer brewing in America. The first one 
was that it had really good water. The water is filtered through limestone and sandstone. Lake Michigan water is good brewing water as well. And if you don't have good water, you can't make good beer. Something that also set Milwaukee apart was how cold it was. The freezing temperatures were hardly ideal for enjoying outdoor beer gardens. But that meant that breweries could keep their beers cool. The final thing that set Milwaukee up was the fact that it had a relatively small population compared to the other brewing centers. All those advantages gave Milwaukee a rare problem. They had too much beer. They brewed more than the city could consume. So they had to create something that would keep if it had shipped further than Wisconsin. And who would help them do it? Captain Frederick Pabst. That's right, Captain Frederick Pabst. He was a ship captain, an unusual start for someone who would become one of America's most renowned beer barons. From an early age, Frederick Pabst was unwilling to settle for the ordinary. During his childhood, Johann Gottlieb Friedrich Pabst and his family immigrated to the United States in 1848. When he was old enough, he got a job as a cabin boy on a Great Lake steamer, but he quickly climbed the ranks. Fred Pabst was unwilling to settle for being second best. He studied accounting in his spare time. He rose through the ranks and eventually became a first mate. And then, according to the stories, he was able to save a captain and some crew members during a shipwreck through his quick thinking, and the company continued to promote him. And by 1857, he is commanding his own ships. And as a captain, he had made some interesting acquaintances out at sea. During his many voyages, Captain Pabst had become acquainted with Philip Best, who was a prominent Milwaukee brewer. And through these voyages, he got to know the family better. Soon, he fell in love with Philip Best's daughter, Maria. There is a story that Pabst had, in fact, rescued Maria when she missed her step getting onto the boat and fell into the water. And in 1862, they got married. But soon after, his fate would turn. In 1863, when he was captaining the Seabird, the ship got caught in a storm. No one was hurt, but the wreck plummeted Pabst into some serious debt. But rather than panic, Pabst saw an opportunity. Best Brewery, the brewery his father-in-law owned, was one of the most successful brewing companies in Milwaukee, and they needed help. Philip Best realized that his new son-in-law had an excellent business mind. So very shortly after the marriage and shortly after the shipwreck, Philip brings Frederick Pabst on as a full partner. But Pabst didn't do it alone. He worked alongside his brother-in-law. Emil Shandine had a much different personality than Captain Pabst. Shandine would have been much happier to be a university professor teaching and studying botany, but he was still driven by the same desire to excel. Shandine was regarded as one of the best barley analysts and buyers in the country, and he and Paps made a pretty good team. But when it came to modernization, Best & Company's Empire Brewery wasn't the best brewery in town. Technology was changing rapidly. Other breweries were building modern factories and running them with a new type of energy, steam power. Turning heat into motion allowed them to brew more bottles in a fraction of the time. The best company wasn't innovating fast enough, and they were beginning to trail behind their competitors. 
So in 1870, Paps decided to buy another brewery to accelerate the company's growth. And conveniently, a brewery on the south side of town was up for sale. The south side brewery was a spectacular building. It was often mistaken for a cathedral because it had tall spires on each corner. But that amount of structure and equipment was not cheap. It cost Paps $95,000, which in modern dollars would convert to about $2 million. It was a risk, but a risk worth taking. What made the Southside Brewery particularly attractive was that it was much newer than their existing brewery, and it had much better links to multiple different railroads and to the river. And it soon enabled Pabst to more than double its production capacity. By 1874, there were over 100,000 barrels, and in that year, they were the largest brewery in the United States. But they were making more beer than they could sell. At that point, Best was competing with dozens of other breweries and producing more beer than Milwaukee consumed in a year. So Pabst set out to create a national beer brand. In the years right after the Civil War, there really aren't any national brands. There is nothing that you can find from New York to San Francisco. So attempting to create a national brand is going to be really uncharted territory. They had a couple of challenges. The first of them is the beer itself. It has to be stable enough to survive transportation of long distances and also transportation that might go through a variety of weather conditions. It's more harmful for beer to get warm, cold, warm, cold than it is simply to get warm. So they have to make sure that the beer is stable and will still taste good. American beers didn't keep well when they were transported and exposed to different weather conditions. So Paps looked to the innovations that German Americans were making to brewing. The brewers in Central Europe that led the development of lager in the mid-1800s had done so with German climate conditions and German ingredients. And many of the German brewers who came over to the United States expected that doing the same thing the same way would bring them the same results. But the barley grown in America had a different composition, leading to a cloudier beer. So they spent years trying to recreate the golden, crystal clear brew they were used to with American ingredients. At best, they were working on something called the Kreuznach process. Which was the process by which a little bit of new beer was added to the old beer to produce the carbonation. Carbonization was important because it gave the beer its fizz and improved the beer's shelf life. So these developments in brewing chemistry and in the improved mechanics of the brew house, as well as the packaging, are what ultimately led to this golden-colored, light and crisp-tasting, appealing-looking product that becomes the modern American-style lager. And it had a lot of potential because, as it turned out, beer drinkers were looking for something new. The American beer-drinking public, as well as drinkers all over the world, are starting to think of beer as a source of refreshment, as well as something that has a particular flavor. And the effervescent, clear, cool American lager turns out to be perfect. It really ends up being the poor man's champagne. 
So Captain Papp stepped in with a plan to make the ultimate American lager. Because of a combination of factors, the 1870s turned out to be exactly the right moment for Paps to perfect this new formula. With a series of new brewmasters, they had been experimenting with using rice and corn in the beer, which would provide not only more stability, but also a lighter color and a lighter flavor. So they were able to take care of the demands of their customers who wanted the lighter beer, and also the demands of their distributors who wanted a beer whose quality that they could guarantee and that they could sell with confidence. But experimenting with new recipes involved a lot of trial and error. And while nobody was complaining about having to dispose of a bottle or two at the end of the long day, it wasn't cheap. So they made slow, small changes to work out what their customers wanted to drink. They did not want to make a huge change all at once, partially because it was unpredictable for the brewing process, but also because an incremental change probably wouldn't be noticed by the consumer. So if you gradually increase the rice and the corn, and if you shifted slowly from rice to corn, experimented with different types of corn a little bit at a time, you wouldn't be in a position where you would have to dump hundreds of thousands of gallons of beer because it went bad. But the perfect brewmaster arrived just in time. His name was J.F. Toyer. He would go on to help create a lager that would eventually be known as America's best beer. J.F. Toyer. He had come specially recommended to Paps, and he turned out to be a genius, not just at recipe development, but also at the mechanical side of brewing. He was able to figure out how the yeast would react with the different grains and make sure that the beer was consistent, but he also personally designed some of the new carbonating processes that were essential to a stable beer, as well as some of the other mechanical improvements in the brewery that would help make the best use of new malting techniques and artificial refrigeration. The new recipe created a crisp, clean, and golden new lager with a much longer shelf life. Back then, they named it Best Select, but today we know it as PBR, Pabst Blue Ribbon. By the 1880s, the brewery was really taking on Pabst's personality and character as it became much more of a national business. Emil Shandine died in 1888, and after his passing, it seemed appropriate that that was the time to now change the name from the Best Brewing Company to the Pabst Brewing Company. Captain Pabst was already so well-known in the public eye as the head of the company that it was a smooth transition. But Pabst wanted to pay homage to his father-in-law, Philip Best. So he decided to keep one thing the same. The logo of the brewery, which was a hop cone with a B in it, remained. So the B stayed there throughout the company's history rather than changing over to a P. To complete the look, they tied the bottle with a blue ribbon. One of the things that made Pabst Brewing Company and its flagship Pabst Blue Ribbon so iconic in American beer was the fact that it was really an intersection of brewing technology and beer marketing. PBR was one of the first beers to really combine the new technology, new ingredients, and put it together in a way that appealed to drinkers throughout the country and throughout the world. 
and it was introduced when modern advertising was really beginning to take off. Paps decided that their new refined bottled beer product, Best Select, should have a blue ribbon tied around the top in order to make it stand out for retailers. And just to have that little bit of extra attraction that would make it appealing to customers. So the blue ribbon begins to appear on the bottles as early as 1882. By the 1890s, the brewery is already buying miles worth of blue ribbon each year to put on these bottles. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As the best brewing company was spending the 1880s trying to perfect their recipe for American lager, the competition between them and other Milwaukee breweries was getting tougher. And one of the beer battlegrounds was the growing trend of breweries creating their own tide houses. Here's John Eastberg, the historian emeritus at Milwaukee's Pabst Mansion. A tied house is a saloon or property that's tied directly to the brewing company that sells their products exclusively. This was an important part of the system of the American Brewing Company of getting their products out to consumers before mass advertising was available. So the tied houses were actually kind of like a neighborhood community center, if you will. And the brewing companies really gave a lot of emphasis to what the physical interior looked like. They built the furniture, they built the back bar. There would be large advertising lithos on the wall, you know, displaying the, the products and huge signs of what the brewing company looked like. It was really to give a clean, wholesome appearance, especially for these saloons that were tied to the brewing companies. These Tide House saloons were like in-person advertisements for the breweries they were owned by. They were filled with chairs, glasses, and signs emblazoned with the logo of the brewery of the beer that they sold. With the increase in urbanization after the end of the Civil War, the number of saloons in the country skyrockets. In Milwaukee alone, by the 1880s, there were well above 1,000 saloons. And one of the Milwaukee-based breweries that Paps had to compete with back then was Schlitz. Here's Eastberg again. Schlitz embodies the best parts of what lager beer should be. It's bright, it's crisp, and with a touch of sweetness, a kiss of the hops, which was their old tagline. 
To me, it's like the quintessential American lager. Because you get what only Schlitz can bring you, that deep, cool, kiss-of-the-hops flavor. Schlitz's lager was a crisp and slightly bready malt lager with a touch of bitterness, whereas Papp's lager was a delicate, slightly citrusy lager with a sweet aftertaste. Despite their differences, the two lagers were competing for the same drinkers. One of the ways in which the competition between Pabst and Schlitz really displayed itself was in their constant quest for tied houses. And it wasn't just numbers. They were also looking for location. Having a saloon property on a corner was much better than having one in the middle of the block. Having one in a district where there were a number of factories was much better than having one in a quiet residential neighborhood. And having one right across the street from your arch rival gave the people a choice. Imagine it. You're walking down a street in Milwaukee with your buddies, looking for somewhere to have a drink after a long day. Before you stand two choices. To the right, you have a schlitz tied house covered in red and blue branding and selling American-style lager. Then to your left, you have a pabst tied house covered in their red and blue branding, selling the signature drink Best Select. How would you pick between the two? Well, Pabst and Schlitz had a slightly different approach to how they created their tied houses. Schlitz was more interested in numbers of properties, but Pabst took more interest in positioning their beer in what they call higher market, higher end properties. Pabst's interest in high end properties would ultimately lead him to create nine elite hotel properties in cities ranging from New York to San Francisco, and to also establish properties on Coney Island, as well as restaurants near Columbus Circle in New York, and what was at one point the biggest restaurant in the world in the Harlem neighborhood of New York. By the early 1890s, the Paps brand was stronger than ever with an impressive number of hotels, restaurants, and Tide Houses that exclusively sold Pabst Lager. These Tide Houses allowed them to advertise their beer in different markets across the country and establish themselves as one of the first truly national beer brands in America. They become the first brewery in the world to pass the one million barrel mark. They had offices around the world, and they employed thousands of people. But Schlitz was right behind them. They were closing on 800,000 barrels. So, to prove that they were still the best brewery in town, Pabst used his excellent marketing mind to take them sky high. Pabst and Schlitz were competing not just to sell their beer, not just to have the most possible saloon properties, but also really to leave a mark on their city. And it's for this reason that the Pabst building becomes Milwaukee's first real skyscraper. Pabst also invested in the Pabst Theater, which was then and is still today one of the centers of Milwaukee's cultural life. By 1893, the competition between Schlitz and Pabst was reaching a fever pitch. They had both created dozens of Tide Houses, leveled up their marketing, and created brands that were being sold across the country. Pabst needed a major win to secure its place in the Beer Hall of Fame. And an opportunity was just around the corner with the 1893 World's Columbian Exhibition, Chicago. Here's John Eastbrook again. The World's Fair in 1893 was one of those great watershed moments in so many different ways. 
It was where all the technologies of the world came together. It's where all of the arts of the world came together. Pabst and Schlitz were both vendors at the fair, each there to outshine the other. Pabst and Schlitz created two outstanding pavilions to display their products. The Schlitz Pavilion at the 1893 World's Fair was unbelievable. But Pabst had an advantage over Schlitz. Here's Doug Hoverson again. The exclusive contract for providing beer at the fair was won by the Pabst Brewing Company. There were 87 different beer stands throughout the grounds, and it was estimated that the total length of the counters at these beer stands was almost two miles long. Yeah, two miles of Pabst beer stands. Not too shabby. With Schlitz's pavilion and Pabst's exclusive beer contract, the two breweries spent the World Fair in a fierce competition to win the drinking hearts of the country. Then something happened that would push one brewery to the top. So towards the end of the Chicago World's Fair, in October of 1893, there was going to be a judging of the brewed products amongst all the brewers that were entering into the competition. The judging of the brewed products was really seen as going to be an informal process, but then all these brewers started thinking, well, the marketing opportunities with the winning brew would be tremendous. The exhibitors knew that a beer competition would attract a larger audience, and the breweries knew that competing would put more eyes on their products. But there was a debate over how the competition would be judged. There were so many different factors for the judges to take into account. One of them, of course, would be flavor, but that turned out to not be as important for the judges in 1893. They were more interested in the technical side of brewing. So more points were awarded for technical merit, for purity, and other things that could be measured in a laboratory rather than simply how the beer tasted. One other important and controversial factor was how commercially important they were. And this automatically tilted the competition in favor of the larger breweries. So the competition came down to Pabst and Anheuser-Busch, the brewery that had purchased Schlitz. But the competition quickly descended into controversy. When the judging actually happened, it turned out to be a total mess. The directors of the competition urged the judges to keep their scores private, but they became public almost immediately. The selection of the judges was also a problem because two of the judges had known ties to Pabst Brewing Company. Two other judges had known ties to Anheuser-Busch. So there was really only one judge that was going to end up being a neutral party. Talk about a stacked deck. When the scores were reported, preliminary results came early and Pabst claimed victory. Then some of the lab results came in and there was an alleged impurity in Pabst Select. So Adolphus Bush then claims that Budweiser is clearly the winning beer. But then another set of lab results came back that ruled there was, in fact, no impurity in the Pabst Select and the original score should stand. Is your head spinning yet? And within a couple of days, Pabst is chosen as America's favorite beer at the 1893 World's Fair. The beer fans in Milwaukee went home to celebrate their win with a torchlight parade to the Pabst factory. They were now home to both the world's largest lager brewery and America's favorite beer. That win gave Pabst the opportunity to cement their iconic Blue Ribbon branding. So they, in fact, changed the name of the beer from Select to Blue Ribbon. 
continue to keep the blue ribbon on the beer, but now they had a great marketing hook that they could use to represent their beer as the champion beer. It won the blue ribbon. It had really earned a gold medal, not a blue ribbon, but other breweries had gold medals. Only Paps had a blue ribbon. And that blue ribbon would become an essential part of Paps' legacy. Over a hundred years later, the blue ribbon is still prominent on the label. It's prominent in the name and the acronym PBR is known almost universally by people of all ages. And this is a real testimony to the marketing success that was led by Captain Pabst and his team. They were able to take this event, to take an existing identity and really make it something that identified with the American public. And they were able to support it with a brew of consistent quality. To this day, every can and bottle of Pabst Blue Ribbon is printed with the words, selected as America's best in 1893. It was definitely a standout brew, but it was the marketing that really launched them into the Beer Hall of Fame. Throughout the 20th century, Pabst was one of the most important names of any American consumer product. They had very creative print advertising series in newspapers and magazines throughout the country and really throughout the world. They also embraced radio and television. Give her that Pabst Blue Ribbon answer. What do you have? Pabst Blue Ribbon. What do you have? Pabst Blue Ribbon. What do you have? Pabst Blue Ribbon. Pabst Blue Ribbon beer. And even to this day, people of many different ages can be found singing to themselves, what do you have? Pabst Blue Ribbon. What do you have? Pabst Blue Ribbon. What'll you have? Paps Blue Ribbon, Paps Blue Ribbon beer. Their legacy lives on to the present day. Paps is one of the most important American breweries ever, and PBR is one of the most iconic brands. It was one of the ones, along with Budweiser and Schlitz, that really launched American beer onto the international scene. And Paps Blue Ribbon was able to reinvent itself several times to stay relevant in a rapidly changing beer world. Not a bad ending for a captain who is just trying to recover from a shipwreck. If you like this podcast, then you'll love watching the Food That Built America TV series on the History Channel. Go to history.com to find out how you can watch the Food That Built America today. The Food That Built America is hosted by me, Jonathan Hirsch. At the History Channel, our executive producers are Jesse Katz, Mary Donahue, and Jim Pascarella. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn. From Neon Hum Media, our executive producer is me. The series is produced by Muna Danish and Kate Mishkin. Our associate producers are Chloe Chobel and Rufaro Faith. Our editor is Maura Waltz. Samantha Allison is our production manager. Sam Baer and Josh Hahn are our mix engineers. Music from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound, and fact-checking by Naomi Barr. The Food That Built America was originally produced by Lucky 8 TV for the History Channel. Hold up! 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.